be seated. Um, we spoke this morning about a certain kind of legalism, uh, asceticism, which uh, seeks to add a number of commands to the word of the Lord. And uh, I'd like to broaden out our study of that by inviting you to turn with me in the Gospel of Luke to Luke chapter 18. We come across that uh, word again, justified, about how we can be justified before the bar of God's justice. The contrast given here in our Lord's parable between a Pharisee and a despised tax collector. Here now from Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news that is implicit in this very passage that we, um, who likewise uh, claim to be part of that great company that Jesus has come to save, for it was sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, that we should find here not only the assurance of our life and future, but the approval of our Lord Jesus Christ and we wish likewise all to go home justified before you. Oh, Father, deliver us from that scourge of legalistic self-righteousness and a proud heart that despises others. Uh, we pray that we would learn the meekness and the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ, here taught in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, perhaps over the years, Christians have tolerated no sin more than the sin of legalism. Oftentimes, legalists aren't actually even thought of, of sinning in the same sense as adulterers, thieves, and the like. To the contrary, legalism at least seems to promote holiness, which is a Christian concern. But the Bible teaches us that legalism is a great and aggressive evil. And that all those who have been saved by grace must strongly oppose it. You will know, of course, that uh, most of Paul's letter to the Galatians is a vigorous, broadside attack on the religion, the false religion of legalism. Many of his letters contain strong warnings about the dangers. Here, Christians who believe all the right things about God but say something as innocuous as, but, but the Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Uh, Paul considers that not some theological subtlety. 
he sees that as a, an attack on the very heart and soul of the religion of Jesus Christ. Legalism is no minor sin in the Bible, certainly not in Paul's mind or in Jesus' mind. Now, there are many paths to hell. Let's just put it on the table. For some, their path is things like the worship of false gods, which is to say that their hope of salvation is in some idol that proves at the end to be nothing at all. Maybe Tash, right? Some of you Narnia fans. For others, the path to hell is their refusal to believe in God at all, or if he exists, to believe that at least he doesn't care how we live, which is to say the faith of many millions of people in our secular culture of the West. But in Holy Scripture, I think probably the most common fatal error that we find described regarding God and salvation, indeed the most insidious path to hell is that of legalism, trusting in God's sight that you are righteous, either in the ritual way or in the legal way, I'll try to explain in a minute. But it comes up again and again and again. It comes up because the Bible typically addresses a religious audience, and legalism flourishes in a religious environment. And so Jesus often revealed legalism to be this aggressive evil, which must be exposed and condemned. Jesus assailed it time and time again, not as just some difference over some ways of keeping the laws of God or something like that. Oh, no. Uh, a complete contrary to the religion, the true religion of grace. But let me define some terms before I get much further along. You'll know that legalism means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, right? I mean, uh, we need to be careful what we say here. Some people think that legalism means just diligently, conscientiously keeping God's commands. Uh, I've been accused of being a legalist because I preach that we ought to do as the Lord says. Well, Jesus says if we love him, we ought to obey his commands, and so that can't be legalism. Um, we can't add, we can't take away. We should be conscientious and thoughtful about keeping his commands diligently. Um, there's a, a kind of legalism that uh, we considered this morning, a kind that uh, stacks extra commands onto the religion of God, uh, not always in a uh, heretical way, but sometimes being just in error. Sometimes that's called legalism, but uh, more commonly in the Bible, more properly here in the parable before us, we find what legalism truly is in all of its hideous uh, reality. Uh, the essence of legalism in a man who is confident in his own righteousness, and honestly has a great deal to be confident about. He is confident in his righteousness before God, and therefore he despises those who despise goodness like he does, uh, good people like him. Legalism is a religious idea and a religious practice. It requires a lot of religion. You have to have a real sense of God. You have to have some real sense of God's judgment. You have to have some belief that God has a law that he expects people to live by and that he has standards that he expects people to meet, that there is a judgment coming at which God will weigh our lives in the balance. Now, Worldly people, as I said earlier, are much less likely to care about keeping the commandments or even attempting to please God with their efforts because, well, again, if there is a God, they don't imagine that he really cares much what their life is like. But, you know, they're not axe murderers. They're decent people. 
they're, they're going to heaven when they die, if there is such a place. Most of the people that you rub shoulders with, therefore, are not actually legalists, but we might say the opposite, antinomians. That's another sermon. But legalism is a form of unbelief that's found in highly religious environments, uh, such as those environments that predominate in the time when the Bible was written. So that's why it so often comes up in the teaching of Jesus and the apostles and the prophets, for that matter. And uh, legalism is going to be our subject today, or in the spirit of Machen, Christianity and legalism. Um, one more thing as we start, I came across a general definition from Sinclair Ferguson that broadens it out some, and I think it would be good for me to put it before you. He says, in essence, legalism is any teaching that diminishes or distorts the generous love of God and the full freeness of His grace. It then distorts God's graciousness and fails to see law set within its proper context as an expression of a gracious father. My son, this is the way to go. Well, dear friends, we're going to learn today about why this popular religion of legalism is so wrong and why you and I are to have great confidence in our salvation despite our many sins. We're going to learn how the good news changes the proud, censorious lives of real people and makes us not brittle, but gracious, patient, and humble toward men. Well, let's begin with the general topic of legalism in the passage, uh, and uh, we'll, I have two sub-points for you, self-righteousness and despising others. Um, Considering legalism from this passage, legalism, this popular sin that not only resists the grace of God, but then makes us ungracious toward others. In the parable, Jesus exposes here two related sins at the heart of legalism. The first and the greatest is this, people who trust in themselves that they are righteous. And the second is like it, despising others. We're going to look at both. First, self-righteousness. This Pharisee was, of course, as we said, a believer in God. He believed a great deal of uh, good things, apparently. Uh, even believed in God's grace and sovereignty. I mean, he was a, a good man, but he thanks God that he was one. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. But there's something profoundly wrong. Even though he's addressing God, he doesn't know God as he ought, and therefore he doesn't know himself as he should. Now, let me say that in this parable, Jesus is not giving some kind of a caricature or a straw man. He's not uh, making something up. In fact, there are many prayers just like this in the rabbinical materials of the time. For example, there's the famous prayer that reads, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile. Uh, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Uh, so this is uh, very much the, the heart of Judaism, uh, well, rabbinic Judaism to this day. Uh, and not just Judaism. I mean, I, I read a dated but an important study about religion, a three-year st study focused on Christianity in Minnesota. Why? I don't know. But researchers found that only 57% of those Christians 
accepted the belief that all people are sinful. One-third said that they made many mistakes, but that they were not sinful themselves. One typical respondent was quoted as saying, quote, The day I die, I'll only have to look up at my maker and say, Take me, not forgive me. The reporter noted, in short, Minnesota Christians tend to attribute sin to others. I read that and I thought, thank God that I'm not like those Minnesotans. <laughs> this Pharisee, as I say, not only had a great deal of good belief, he had a great deal of righteousness to trust in. He says, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even this tax lecturer. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of uh, all that I get. The law, of course, only required one day of fasting the whole year, so to fast twice every week was it a behavior of an extremely, seriously religious man. Further, he tithed, tithed more than the law required. Pharisees uh, were known even to tithe garden herbs. Um, everything, of all that he received, he tithed. He did more than the law required. I mean, the man had righteousness to spare. Uh, what's the uh, uh, Catholic equivalent? Uh, super irrigation, works, works of super irrigation, building up a treasury of merit. I mean, that was the kind of guy he was. That's the mindset of a legalist. He had plenty of righteousness and to spare, doing more than what God required. The legalist thinks that he's right with God because he's kept certain laws, certain ordinances, rules that he picks and chooses for himself. Invariably, those are not things like loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, uh, all of our mind, all of our strength, or our neighbor as ourself. Those are, those are not the things that are made the, the rule. The legalist picks rules that he is able to keep and conveniently neglects or ignores those things that he's not able to keep. He focuses on outward obedience and therefore he neglects or begins to neglect the heart that God requires. Christian legalists ultimately then trust in themselves rather than Jesus for righteousness. And, and, and this is a very widespread false religion, people. Many surveys of people in our country report that those who call themselves Christians, when asked what they think would be the reason that they should go to heaven, reply, in one way or another, that they's good people. And it never occurs to them, even though they claim to be Christians, to mention the name of Jesus Christ or His cross or His resurrection or anything else in explain, explaining the matter of their salvation. In their mind, righteousness is not God's free gift of grace in Jesus, but their own achievement. That's the religion of legalism. Uh, if they're moral people, we think, oh, not so bad. The Bible is death on this religion. Even people, as I say, uh, in the church and evangelical churches have uh, a hard time uh, coming to the proper understanding of their profound need. The evangelist Eddie Martin some years ago conducted a crusade in nearby Bluefield, West Virginia. And when he gave an invitation, one of the well-dressed women came forward. It was Martin's practice to have them repeat after him a sinner's prayer. And so he took her by the hand and prayed these words, Dear Lord, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I can't save myself. I need forgiveness for my awful sins. Please accept me, Jesus. 
uh, the woman dropped out halfway. He, he looked at her and asked, well, ma'am, don't you want to be saved? She said, yes, but I'm not a sinner. Then you can't be saved, he says. Jesus only died for sinners. But Reverend Martin, she said, I'm a good sinner. <laughs> it, it's, it's hard to get the truth into our brains. Uh, I can't say it better than Calvin commenting on this verse. Every man that's puffed up with self-confidence carries on open warfare with God to whom we cannot be reconciled in any other way than by laying aside all confidence in our own virtue and righteousness and relying on his mercy alone. So here's the first sin of the legalist, the first subpoint to you, trusting in yourself that you are righteous. And dear friends, if somebody asks one of you Christians what hope you might have of heaven, I hope the very first word out of your mouth is not I, but Jesus. That's the way. All right. Trusting in yourself that you are righteous. And here's the second, which is like it, despising others. The, the man prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, even as this tax collector. Now, it's just a fact that legalists are simply not content to live and let live, to uh, live as they see fit and leave others alone. Um, they are first recruiters who seek to bring everyone into their miserable system of bondage, traveling land and sea to make people us twice the son of hell as themselves, as Jesus says. But when that endeavor fails, they become proud judges of others, who, of everyone, who doesn't do what they have done. Now, uh, as you can even tell from the language in this passage, uh, this destroys relationships, divides churches, and drives out compassion and patience for others. This lack of humility before God is at the root of so many sins between men. Uh, the husband says to his wife, but you, and she says to her husband, but you. Uh, some of you have been through re-engage. You know that the first half of that curriculum is set up to say, stop the pointing of the finger, hold on. Why don't you look at yourself before God? Why don't you, and the, and the, as the curriculum says, draw a circle around yourself and work on everybody within that circle. And then you realize that the one in the circle is actually the biggest hindrance that you have toward marital bliss. Because you see, this despising others comes from a proud heart toward God. It's the root of so many other sins. Now, the difference between the Pharisees of that day and most legalistic people today is that the Pharisees thought actually very carefully and seriously about how to trust in themselves and why they ought to be considered righteous. I mean, they were wrong, but they were very thoughtfully wrong. Most people assume that they are righteous simply because, ah, they haven't done too much bad. Uh, they give very little thought or serious reflection. Um, most people, if you like, are Pharisees on the cheap, in other words. But they hardly think that the question of their own righteousness even deserves careful consideration. But any honest man or woman will give away the truth because they'll admit every day in one way or another that they actually, in so many ways, look down on others, despise others. Uh, none of this there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. Oh, oh no. Right? The telltale sign 
that one is proud and self-righteous is the despising, despising of others. And here are the twin sins of legalism. Pride, that you are righteous, and despising others who are not. Well, before we go on to consider some good news, I would like briefly to make three observations about what's really wrong with legalism. Laid it out from the passage. Let's go a little deeper before we press on. Legalism first is inevitably dishonest. It's dishonest. I mean, it requires you to believe a lie, that, that you are far better than you actually are. Not a little better, not 1% better, far better, righteous in God's sight. It forces you to ignore the full extent of your massive failure to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor is yourself. And, 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 and you imagine yourself somehow to be piling up merits when in fact you are simply digging a deeper hole. That even your best works, as Augustine said, are just splendid sins. Still falling short, although not as much. It's inevitably dishonest. Very dishonest. Secondly, legalism makes it possible for men to keep God's law. In other words, uh, say, it, it lies about God's law. Um, men are deeply sinful, proud, and selfish by nature, and so in order for them to imagine that they are, in fact, very righteous, keeping the commandments of God, all these I've kept, they have to redefine the commandments of God. And uh, this is very hard to do when you look in the Bible, but this is what all legalists must do. They make the commandments easier to keep, they think, so that they can indulge the illusion that they have kept them. Surely, you know, this is what the Jews did. Uh, they had a certain checklist of requirements for all the Ten Commandments, for instance. You do this, you, you keep the commandments, right? Um, uh, this uh, still the faith of Rome to this day. Uh, you're going to be saved in Rome, you have to keep the commandments. And they, they, they have ways that you can keep them, ways that you break them. Okay, there's, there's certain minor sins, venial sins that you can do, and look, you don't, lo you don't, you don't lose anything. Um, I mean, you don't come to church on a Sunday. You choose not to come to church on a Sunday for some other reason that you could avoid. Uh, you, you'll lose your salvation, because that's a major sin, a violation of the fourth commandment. But uh, if you're as long as you're there, you're keeping the fourth commandment, you're doing what the Lord wants. Okay, so this is what the Jews did. They, they took this spiritual law, and they took out all the difficulty of obeying it. They redefine obedience in outward and superficial ways. You no longer have to uh, have this uh, uh, heart uh, and motive and life and so forth. You just had to follow some, some certain regulations, um, meet some social outward requirements, and you're good. You no longer need uh, to keep your heart and motivation pure, just keep it within bounds, which is not too hard to do. This is how not only the Jews of Jesus' day imagined that they had kept the commandments, but even earned a place in heaven. They spoke with all earnestness, like the rich young ruler, of, of having kept the commandments. Paul said, in respect to the law, blameless. They eviscerated the true meaning of the law, which is deeply spiritual. Uh, sorry, moving on. Third, Christian legalism 
is a denial of the life and saving work of Jesus Christ. Christian legalism is a, you might say, a categorical denial of the history of the life and saving work of Christ. Uh, legalism, it, Christian legalism is especially bad because it has no use for Jesus. It, it doesn't require him. It typically doesn't even mention him. It doesn't need his death on the cross. It doesn't require his resurrection from the grave. Now, if one can save himself by keeping the commandments of God, why would the Son of God have come into the world as a man to die in the place of sinners? Paul makes this argument explicitly elsewhere. He says, look, if a law had been given that could impart life, righteousness would have come from the law, or come by the law. God is not going to subject his own beloved Son to the ignominy of his creatures in the cruelest form of suffering and death if, after all, righteousness could have come by your good deeds. The Jews thought that there was a law given that could impart life, and the man who does these things, they would, quote, should live by them, misunderstanding the law. But the appearance of the Son of God in the world is the supreme proof that there is no law and no possibility of salvation in that way. Salvation was going to require an extraordinary intervention in the life of mankind, nothing less than God going to the cross in the person of Jesus. People today sometimes have trouble with the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ, and they say, well, hey, what about the, all the good people of the world, right? How can God condemn them? Just another form of legalism. As we've already read from the very beginning, there is no one good in God's sight. No, not one. There are no such good people. And what we mean when we speak of somebody uh, casually as a good person in this or that way, that you know, he meets maybe some superficial standards that men have set by themselves, set for themselves. People mean a, a bar so low that, well, just about everyone he can stumble over the top. We certainly don't mean that he or she has lived a life as God required his creatures to live, that somebody has virtually approximated the life of Jesus himself. They do not mean that. That's God's idea of righteousness. Everybody else is very far short. But anyway, so what am I saying here? I'm saying before we go on, I want to have you see why this is so bad. Legalism is inevitably dishonest about you. It is dishonest about God's law. Worst of all, it makes Jesus of no use. Someone who speaks of human beings as being good knows nothing of the holiness of God. However, the life and ministry of Jesus is proof, unmistakable demonstration, that legalism is a total fraud and always a fraud. He has died on the cross that men and women who could not earn their way to heaven might freely receive righteousness through faith in his name. Okay, having considered legalism, let's turn now, secondly, more hopefully, in our concluding point, to the other religion of the Bible, taught in the Bible in this passage here. We might call it Christianity. Jesus gives the heart of the true believer, the heart of religion, in the way that we can, in his words, be justified by God, before God. He says the way up is the way down. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee stands with a spirit of proud religious superiority, but this tax collector, standing afar off, won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Knowing himself truly, he beats his breast 
And his only plea in desperation is for mercy. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That is his one plea before God. He knows nothing of his own righteousness in the passage, only his own ill desert. He even stands at a distance, the Pharisee, no doubt, closer to the altar, and where he confidently is where he assumes he belongs. The tax collector, standing afar off, pleads only humbly for mercy. This man who knows himself uh, also tells us the truth about who we are. The truth is that we are, in fact, people that have fallen very, very short of the glory of God. Or to say it even more clearly, we have every reason also to beat our breasts. We are inveterate sinners in the sight of God, going astray from the womb. We have nothing to say before God except, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. But that plea is what we most need. And having heard that plea from on high, God says to that sinful man, justified rather than the other. Acquitted, not guilty, righteous, this is the man who stands before my bar justified rather than the other. And this is why there is therefore so much gratitude and love and joy in the Christian faith. It's all about this supreme gift given to people positively undeserving. God who justifies the ungodly. And this is not only the way to be justified before him, but I will mention in passing, for the humble healing of our relationships. You start beating your breast before God and saying, oh God, have mercy, be merciful to me. God, for, forgive me. Forgive me my debts as I also forgive others. You will uh, see how much this helps your relationships and keeps you from despising people whom you should pity. The tax collector knows that he deserves nothing but God's anger. In fact, that, that, that verb, be merciful, is uh, not the ordinary word for mercy, not to make too much of it, but it's actually the verb to propitiate, which we read earlier in the service. Um, be propitiated toward me, O God. Uh, turn your anger away from me. Um, that's, of course, one of the most important terms in the sacrificial ritual of the Old Testament and New. Not coincidentally, I think, this passage says that men went up, the men went up to the temple to pray. That is, in context, almost certainly, they, they went up at the, at the hour of prayer. They went up in the, the times of the morning and the evening sacrifice when it would be offered. <coughs> and on the altar would be that sacrifice of propitiation. The Pharisee um, uh, is confident in his righteousness. The uh, tax collector says, Oh God, be propitiated toward me. May that uh, sacrifice avail for the forgiveness of our sins. I, of course, am ultimately thinking there's a connection here, uh, a subtle one perhaps, to Jesus himself. Well, well, uh, this, uh, this was being told, this parable was being told to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. In other words, the message to them, to the Pharisees who hear it, is that you not only have to stop looking down on those tax collectors, you have to become like them. 
the Pharisee also in each one of us has to humble ourselves, himself, regardless of all of our imagined morality, regardless of our religious devotion, regardless of whatever success we've been able to do by God's grace or not. We have to confess that we still have fallen far short of God's grace. We have no boast and that we deserve to be far off like that tax collector making that our lone plea. It's written, though, that sinners are those that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, and therefore his very good news has come in this passage. We are all those very people that Jesus came into the world to save to propitiate the wrath of God. So whether you're one of those Minnesotans or worse, the Bible has this triumphant message that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the very righteousness of God in him. To receive this good news, we have to first receive the bad. But the good news is there's a cure. The bad news is there's a deadly disease. There's no use saying, Doc, I don't need a cure because I'm not as sick as others. The fact is sin is a disease with a 100% mortality rate. The wages of sin is death. It's appointed for men once to die and then the judgment. And the sooner, therefore, we humble ourselves before this God and know ourselves truly, the sooner that we will be lifted up, that we will be exalted by the grace and the gift of Jesus Christ. And the sooner we will be on the road to healing in our own heart and life and relationships and to becoming the godly, humble people that he's called us to be. Different messages require different responses. Legalism requires dishonesty and superficiality and a censorious attitude. The Christian gospel requires love, gratitude, humility, and a joyful receiving of an impossibly great gift to the undeserving. We are never nearer to true happiness than when we know ourselves to be, in fact, lost, ruined, guilty, and helpless apart from the grace of Jesus. But happy is the one who's not ashamed to come alongside the tax collector and said, yeah, you said it, brother. God have mercy. And so in conclusion, let's leave this passage with a deep sense of the encouragement that it gives to all perhaps still learning to feel their sins, and to all who approach God with this one plea for mercy. For mercy in Jesus' name. Our sins have been many and great. Our prayers at their best weak and faltering. But we remember this tax collector and we take courage. This is the God who justifies the ungodly. And this same Jesus who commended a tax collector's pitiful prayer even now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And this is he who receives sinners. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, bold, we approach the uh, eternal throne. We are thankful again uh, for such a salvation that is peculiarly adapted to our ongoing sinfulness.
we confess that uh, with shame, though we have made each some progress in our Christian life, that the experience that we have now is indeed so far short of that glorious life of our Lord Jesus Christ, that next to him, we can only say, O oh God, have mercy upon us sinners. We are thankful, therefore, for a righteousness that is not ours, a righteousness that is, that is, through, that is from God by faith, a righteousness that is greater than all of our sins. We thank you for such a mighty Savior who was able to bear all of our sins away, nailing them to his cross, that he might clothe us and cover us with garments of white and receive us in his precious name. So we take once again the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ to our very hearts and pray that as we humble ourselves, that we in our very hearts tonight would rejoice and be exalted in Jesus and may his salvation be all our plea. May we never boast, save